This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and it is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Before we start, you know, I'm going to I'm going to exhort you again. I'm going to nudge you. I'm going to downright beg you to go to Apple Podcasts. Go to our page there. Scroll down a few episodes to where Apple embeds the option to rate and review podcasts and write a review for TPNR, baby. Um, I've mentioned big platforms like Apple just won't give us uh, indie podcasts the time of day unless we make them. Uh, And getting enough reviews is one way that we can do that. That way we get to have more folks involved in this sane, intelligent, fun, civic-minded conversation, uh, just like the ones we've been having and the one that we're, we're having today. And now it is an incredible honor to introduce Dr. Francis S. Collins. Dr. Francis Collins is the former director of the National Institutes of Health and was the longest serving director of NIH, spanning 12 years and three pres. Well, I was going to say three presidencies, but very different presidencies. So that's saying a lot. Uh, Dr. Collins is a physician geneticist noted for his landmark discoveries of disease genes and his leadership of the Interna- International Human Genome Project, which culminated in April of 2003 with the completion of a finished sequence of the human DNA instruction book. Dr. Collins' research laboratories discovered a number of important genes, including those responsible for cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, a familial endocrine cancer syndrome, and most recently genes for type 2 diabetes, uh, among others. Dr. Collins was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in November of 2007 and the National Medal of Science in 2009. But what I really want to know is whatever happened to your dad's collection of folk music? <laughs> <laughs> well, fine. Hello, Corey. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to go there. I did have this remarkable childhood growing up with parents who were into theater and music and being homeschooled till the sixth grade because they thought they were better teachers than what I would be likely to get in a school somewhere else. And yeah, my dad had been a folk song collector in North Carolina in the late 30s, early 40s when he was teaching at Elon College. And I'm glad to say uh, he collected about 250 songs, uh, which basically... He got people to sing into his recording machine out there in the hills of North Carolina. I think he only got shot at once or twice. (laughs) And those are all now in the Library of Congress. Oh, wow. American Folk Collection. So if you want to go and listen, Fletcher Collins was my dad's name. There's a whole bunch of the songs that he collected there that have been nicely curated, a little bit of upgrading on the sound quality so you can hear it a little better. Go have it. Go check it out. So I was listening to some of your music, and I was thinking, if Pete Seeger and Jocelyn Elders had a baby, it'd be you. <laughs> but it, it well, also... that's a hard image to try to get my head around, but I think that was a compliment. Thank you. Oh, very much a compliment. So I, I, it also got me thinking. I grew up listening to not necessarily Woody Guthrie, but certainly a lot of Woody Guthrie's songs. Wasn't, didn't Woody Guthrie have Huntington's disease, one of the diseases? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. He died of it, and it was a pretty terribly difficult last few years because that disease just takes away so much of who you are. And yeah, that's that's what happened to Woody. 
Wow. Well, what were um, – I-, I was curious what happened to that collection. So it's all in the Library of Congress. Did, were you yep. able to have some of your dad's uh, recordings? Um, they're accessible, and I've listened to quite a few of them. And, oh, gosh, while he was still alive, he lived to be 98, uh, they did a bit of an interview about his experience, and he told some stories that I hadn't heard before about how he happened to come by some of these songs. Basically, he would go out in the hollers of western North Carolina uh, in his uh, somewhat ancient vehicle with the recording machine in the trunk, and he would go and knock on the door carrying a bottle of bourbon to sort of encourage people <laughs> to think of him as a friend. And a lot of time he got turned away. But once in a while, somebody would say, well, yeah, I think I remember some of those songs I learned from my grandmother. Let's come sit a while and see what happens. Yeah, that's just such an interesting way to tell the story of our culture, but not necessarily yeah. our, our history, but it really is a part of our our country's mm-hmm. history, the fabric of our history through song, through yeah. real folk song. And it's also fascinating to see how these songs develop over time through the oral tradition. Uh, For me, somebody who studies DNA and its evolution over time, there's sort of a parallel here. Songs evolve over time as they get passed from person to person. A lot of the songs that my dad collected, he could find the somewhat similar original version in a collection of ballads uh, from England, uh, the so-called child's ballads. But by the time they made it to Western North Carolina, the characters had changed a bit. Uh, the tune was not quite the same. It was a work in progress. Yeah. You know, it's, there is a connection and there's an evolution. When I started studying the, uh, the evolution of jazz, I heard uh, up, up, right up through the 50s at the very least, um, the, the, the echoes, if not the actual sounds of my people's music. Uh, I, I come from uh, Eastern European Jews. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you, if you hear the the fiddle the way our people use the fiddle, you can very much hear it in in the way the sound that Miles Davis would get out of his his instrument. Uh-huh. I was uh-huh. curious, you know, as I was thinking about you and your connection to music, do you do you think about the connection between music and the mysteries of the universe, both as a scientist as well as a as, as a Christian? Oh, in every way. I think music is such a fascinating window into so many aspects of human experience. I think of music as having had the power in my life uh, to lift me out of certain day-by-day secular experiences and carry me off to some sort of place that kind of fits with what C.S. Lewis called joy, this moment of just intense emotional longing, even though you're not quite sure what you're longing for. Uh, this experience of being so moved by something. Maybe it's the second movement of Beethoven's Third Symphony, which just will never fail to reduce me into uh, somebody who is just tearful, but also brought into a place of just sweet longing. Mm. Music can do that. Right now we have, of course, a big effort in neuroscience to try to understand how that works. What is it about music that taps into circuits in the brain that are so powerful. And I guess we have learned, for instance, if you haven't listened to a piece of music, Corey, that you were really moved by, I can tell you what happened. You just dumped a whole lot of dopamine in your ventral striatum because that is the, that's the neurotransmitter equivalent of having this remarkable emotional reaction to a musical experience. 
That's. Uh, I was going to ask you about that actually, and and I do. There there's quite a few songs depending on the day. The one that never fails is. Uh, any rendition of Louis Armstrong singing La Vie en Rose, I just have to stop what I'm doing and just let it let it play. Just breathe and <laughs> let it play. I was curious, though, is there something unique to human beings, this this sort of reaction, this sense of, I, I think C.S. Lewis might use the word numinous. I, maybe I'm forgetting that. He would. No, you're quite right. I okay. like that word. So is that unique to our species or... It, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching to find some the spiritual, the <laughs> transcendent, and I'm imposing it that um, that gap that that I'm trying to put spiritual or God in there. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I'm glad to accommodate that idea because I think <laughs> it does feel that way to me as a believer. It's sort of a a link, a signpost to something that's greater than we can kind of put into words. Our species is unique in terms of that kind of really rich emotional reaction to music. Chimpanzees, by the way, are really lousy musicians. They are not even very good at keeping a beat. Of course, we have to sort of look across the rest of the animal kingdom and say, well, what about songbirds? Uh, They're pretty darn impressive in terms of their ability to both produce and respond uh, to musical tones, although we don't quite know whether they're having a numinous experience or just looking for a mate, (laughs) maybe some of both. But clearly, I think one of the things uh, when you ask, what does it mean to be human? It's this higher uh, experience of having the ability to touch something that yeah. goes beyond just the simple, straightforward uh, accommodation of your senses to something that just happened. It takes you somewhere richer and deeper than that. Yeah, yeah. I've been only half joking about doing a dissertation sometime about, I won't say who, because I don't want to get distracted in this conversation by individual characters, but uh, some characters simply, I, I, I can, the hypothesis is that certain individuals do not have a soul. Either they weren't born with one or they uh, slowly but surely suffocated their soul over time. And the, the evidence, the pieces of evidence that I would use in this dissertation is their response or lack of response to music as well as, <laughs> as, well as the um, uniquely human – and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think laughter is a hu- uniquely human um, action or, or reaction um, – and the only laughter, this one individual I'm thinking of, the only laughter one might see is uh, a sort of cruelty, a, a laughter mm. out of cruelty. But anyway, that's a, a little mm. bit of a distraction. If you have any thoughts on that, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to to hear what you think. <laughs> I think going to the, the hypothesis of somebody without a soul, I'm going to let that one go by. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Actually, we'll go in the exact opposite direction. I, I, I've heard you share this once or twice. Um, I'd love for you to share how an encounter with a heart patient led you to your faith in Christ. I would be glad to do that because uh, this still feels like something that happened yesterday, although I was 26 at the time. Uh, you know, I was not raised in a home where faith was really practiced or considered very important. Uh, I mentioned earlier being homeschooled and people probably thought, oh, it was for religious reasons. No, it was definitely not. It was for other educational reasons. I did get sent to church by my dad because he thought it would be a good way to learn music and particularly to learn how to sight read uh, music in a choir. And that was a great gift that I took. And I totally ignored the theology because that's what he told me to do. So I had nothing to go on uh, in those challenging moments in college where people are trying to 
figure out what you believe about God. And I was pretty sure I didn't believe any of it. And I kind of maybe was an agnostic, although I don't know if I knew the word. And then I became an atheist in graduate school studying chemistry. I was focused on the scientific method and that was all that mattered. But then I went to medical school and I entered medical school as an atheist and I left as a Christian. And a big part of that was that afternoon with that patient who had really terrible heart disease. I was assigned to take care of her. I was pretty attached to her, to be honest. She reminded me of my grandmother. And she had these horrible episodes of chest pain for which we were not really doing much. And I occasionally would be there when that happened and I would watch to see how she responded. And she had her Bible and she had her prayer life and she would get through it and then say um, she was gonna be okay because God was right there with her. Jesus was uh, holding her hand. And after she would tell me those things, uh, one time she turned to me because I just sort of sat there puzzled and said, so doctor, I've told you about my faith and how it helps me. You never seem to say anything. What do you believe? Four words, what do you believe? Nobody had ever really asked me that. And it was such a sincere from the heart of a, dearly impressive, loving person that I couldn't just blow it off. And I had no answer. I, I, I suppose I would have said, I don't believe any of this, but it didn't seem right. And I suddenly wasn't sure that was what I really thought anyway. That <laughs> was this moment of realizing I have given no attention to this question. This person has just probably probed me about the most important issue that any of us ever have to consider. And I'm intensely uncomfortable that I don't have an answer. And I got out of the room <laughs> as fast as I could. But it haunted me, Corey. I, I felt like I can't just blow this off. It makes me incredibly uncomfortable. But if I'm supposed to be a guy who values evidence and knowledge, and I've decided I'm an atheist and I've never actually considered the pros and cons for that position. Uh, what kind of a fraud am I anyway? So I'd better do some homework. And so I decided I would set about uh, trying to understand how people could possibly believe this stuff so that I could be a more effective atheist. <laughs> I'll show <laughs> <It> them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> Uh, I was pretty puzzled at first, you know, searching through uh, the things I could find about why people believed, um, trying to read original scripture texts of various sorts. I was kind of lost, but I did find some people to ask about it. And I was particularly helped by a pastor who lived down the street um, who seemed like a reasonable guy who wasn't going to, you know, try to pound the table and convince me to be born again right then. And he gave me a little book that he thought I would really benefit from because he said, this is written by somebody who kind of is asking the questions that you are. And he happened to be an academic. So he really was into the life of the mind. Have a look <laughs> and you will have guessed. Mere Christianity. You got it. Yeah, great. Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis's remarkable, straightforward, very accessible description of yeah. why it is that faith is so much more rational than atheism. That was a shock. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Lord liar or lunatic premise was uh-huh. uh, a great framework to think this through. Before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important. Money. <laughs> uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend, George Meza. George runs Meza Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me. He knows my family. And I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals, and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Meza and Meza Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mezawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mezawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. Was that, were there any particular obstacles uh, that were higher than others or harder to overcome for you than others, intellectually, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, before you finally um, found your, I, maybe aligned and said, oh, I, I, guess, I guess I'm aligning with this. I guess I believe this thing. Yeah. There were a lot of obstacles. <clears throat> it took me two years of back and forth and talking to people and reading other things and trying to understand how this could actually be intellectually defensible because I was kind of full of intellectual pride and that I was not going to be able to say I'm a Christian uh, if I felt that that would somehow turn into a compromise mm. of my rigor. Uh, I mean, it had to be not just maybe possible it had to get all the way to the point of being plausible i knew i wasn't going to get a proof god didn't intend uh, to give us that but it had to be the most plausible of the options <laughs> in order for me not to feel like i've just gotten you know hoodwinked into some perspective that other people feel if it's gonna if i'm gonna own this i've really gotta get to the point of believing it at least enough to take the leap across that gap uh, into the arms of Jesus. And that was a big, tough two-year struggle because I kept encountering all of those objections about why this is wishful thinking, uh, all of the terrible things that Christians have done down through time. How could you want to be one of them? <laughs> have to sort of distinguish between what Christianity is and what Christians have sometimes done in its name, uh, which can be in some instances pretty horrible. And I guess I had to find more people who were believers who I felt, yeah, I'm like that. I could be like that. So finding others and around me in medical school, yeah, I encountered, hey, some of my professors are actually Christians. Once I kind of let it be known, I'd like to talk about it. And that was pretty reassuring as well. Oh, that's great. But but it was still a battle. I, I, I think 
It got though to the point though, Corey, where I came so far down that road that I couldn't really see turning back again. Yeah. That that Jesus became very real in the idea of being in a position to say, well, I just forget all that. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Uh, I couldn't go back. I had to go forward. And that's what happened. That's it's so interesting. It really resonates. Uh, I was 29 uh, when someone gave me the first book I came across that that uh, a friend gave me was uh, Josh McDowell's book. I think it was called More Than a Carpenter, the the smaller one. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That led me to evidence that demands a verdict. And honestly, that was I didn't find that pers- as persuasive as I think my friend had hoped. Um, <laughs> it just really annoyed me. <laughs> but it was at least the, and, and someone was trying to make an empirical case for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And um, I, I thought, oh, okay, this is a coherent case, even though I'm not fully persuaded. Evidence mm-hmm. of the man is verdict. When I got to C.S. Lewis, uh, not just mere Christianity, I think I read the problem of pain as well. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, an incredibly before, powerful book because that's one of the toughest questions that you have to deal with as you're coming to the idea of faith. Is why does God allow suffering? I was curious. So I I imagined you having a conversation with somebody I've become dear friends with over these last couple of years, Jonathan Rausch, yes. and I was curious if you've had the uh, he, he, I really hope that he writes this book. It's, it's a wonderful framework. It's four M's, two of which are the problem for Christians, which is miracles or magic, and then what he would call murder or the, the, the problem of pain. How would you, I, I, if you've had this conversation, I'd love to know what you've told um, Jonathan, but how do, you, how do you answer the problem as a scientist of miracles or magic, like a, a risen Jesus? Yeah, I think that was a big obstacle for me for a while. And I'm glad you brought up John because he's just a wonderful person uh, to have intellectual jousting with. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he's also a guy who, while he's an atheist, has spent a lot of time hanging around believers, (laughs) including a lot of pastors and rabbis. And I think he would say there's something about it that's really appealing, but he thinks that he's kind of colorblind, that. People talk about the colors yeah. uh, of faith, and yet he can't quite see them. Um, I continue to pray that maybe Jonathan's color vision will turn on at some point, and we'll see what happens, because right. he would be quite an amazing Christian. So yeah, that, the miracle issue, it was a huge issue, and then it kind of fell into place as I began to appreciate, really, what what are we talking about when we talk about God the Creator? who actually put into place this amazing, complex, beautiful universe that we are part of. And that's very much part of my sense of the creator, that this was uh, uh, had to be a mind of the most amazing sort uh, to have actually figured out how matter and energy could be put together in the Big Bang in a way that would result in something interesting. This whole argument about uh, the fine-tuning of the universe which I had never heard of until I was searching for some sort of evidence why there might be a mind behind the universe. And there it was. I mean, people like Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein would say, this is just too much of a coincidence that all of these constants that determine things like gravity and nuclear interactions have exactly the precise value that they have in order for there to be something other than particles flying apart forever. Uh, it's it 
defies a simple explanation unless you want to postulate an infinite number of other parallel universes and we just happen to be in the lucky one. Uh, so that, that got my attention and that helps me think about then as the creator God is this mind of incredible capability and is not limited in space and time because otherwise you've not solved the problem about who created the creator. Uh, if that's the case, and if that creator God also wants to have relationship with me, and there you have to kind of look at the moral law as evidence for that, as in C.S. Lewis's very first chapter in Mere Christianity, then God also wanted to send Jesus to be one who walked amongst us to really convey the importance of that relationship and also to give us a chance to have a relationship with God despite our many sins and failures. That's the most amazing miracle, but it makes total sense. Again, if God created all the natural laws, if there's any force that could actually decide to lift those on a temporary basis, well, that would be God. Mm. Hence, hence the virgin birth. Hence, the death on the cross followed by the literal resurrection. Yeah. If, Je if Jesus was the son of God, I have no trouble with the idea that God would have as part of that plan uh, the resurrection uh, of the son. And likewise, with other of uh, the biblical miracles, you notice that they seem to happen at times of significant importance, where there's a message that God is sending to God's people. <laughs> and why not, in that instance, uh, allow the possibility that those laws of nature could be briefly suspended? So I haven't been as tripped up about that as I thought it would be. It all kind of <laughs> fits together in a coherent way. Yeah, I've thought about it as um, the question of an open universe versus a closed universe. And mm. now, now that you're talking, it, I realize that Hawking and Liederman at least uh, helped bring up questions for me that ultimately helped me to answer them a certain way. What I mean is um, Hawking, I'm not a scientist, but I, I've always been deeply curious uh, about macrophysics and microphysics. Uh, so uh, Hawking, his brief history of time, I, I, I'm oversimplifying it, but okay, this Big Bang theory, it makes sense. But if there's the, the Big Bang... Could there have been a big banger? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? And then, and then, Lederman and his God particle. However many years ago that was, um, you know, there's. If we think about the big banger, uh, that's kind of on a macro level. If we get into Lederman and they were looking for, I think, the eighth quark or so. I forget. It's been so long. I forget exactly what it was about. Um, but on a micro, infinitesimally, um, infinitesimally micro level. There's a God somewhere in there too, isn't there? A de designing so infinitesimally. And then if we allow for that big banger and the infinitesimal, you know, eighth quark God designer, th there's, there must be a place for God everywhere in between. <laughs> I'm, I'm answer, I'm like the questions for me that were raised and the way that I answered them for myself is on a much more um, uh, pedestrian level, if you will. But those are some of the uh, questions I was grappling with in my 20s. Now, now that you mentioned and, it. And you were raised Jewish. So this was also another big challenge to try it, to accept not only the creator God, but the son of God. Oh, absolutely. But but so I did all of this reading in the summer of 2000 
uh, for a good six months, eight months. And then finally in the fall, I got to the New Testament. Um, so I started, I started with James. And the first uh, verse or two was about the 12 tribes. And I said, oh, hey, how you doing? That's me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went into Matthew. And what I encountered, and I just read straight through, uh, but what I encountered was a very Jewish story. So when we get to Matthew 5, and I didn't realize I was reading the Sermon on the Mount, but that to <sighs> me was a brilliant of our Torah. What we in, Jew- in Orthodox uh, at Chabad, I, I still go uh, with my father sometimes, uh, after a Torah portion is read, the rabbi gives a Devar Torah. And this rabbi, Jesus, Yeshua, was giving a brilliant Devar Torah. And then yeah. even even in Matthew 23, when there's such a heated argument, I just recognized it as the Kaddish after the service. We're yelling it. No, we're not. Yeah, we're not fighting. We're just, these are, this is how we talk. It's Tuesday, you know? <laughs> so there's there was a lot there. And, and in particular, the profundity of of the resurrection, to me, there couldn't be any other way to to the way that God formed a people as descendants of Abraham and that family um, and the people of Israel, the nation, of, if you will, of Israel as a way to answer what happened in chapter three in Genesis three as a way to answer um, as a way to redeem his creation, if you will. Yes. yes. The only continuation, it was a discontinuation in a lot of ways, the way that, um, uh, N.T. Wright talks about it, but also a continuation uh, that the only path to victory needed to be through the cross. It needed to be through the other side of death itself, an actual bodily resurrection, uh, a this worldly, this earth kind of resurrection. So, I sorry, what, I'm not well the interviewee, said. but... <laughs> no, I'm loving this. Just keep going. It's fine. I'll just listen. <laughs> okay I, I so we're we're almost a half hour into our conversation i haven't asked you about so I, <laughs> i'm imagining uh you know uh, a young dr collins uh going through the help wanted ads and seeing a an ad for a you know a car salesman seeing an ad for an accountant and then seeing an ad for the director the the head of the human genome project oh that looks like a good job no, but <laughs> in all seriousness how does one end up heading the human genome project how does that how did that all come about totally by accident yeah it's not the sort of thing that you plan for uh, i mentioned that i was before i went to medical school uh, i was getting a phd in physical chemistry because i like the sort of rigor of that kind of science and then i got to medical school and like how do i put all this together in genetics sort of emerged as this wonderful digital science about life and about people that tapped into that part of my brain that sort of liked the idea of this exquisite, elegant code, our own instruction book made up of some 3 billion letters in a language that has only four letters in its alphabet. They're actually chemical bases, but uh, wow. How, how amazing is that for somebody who has uh, a little bit of a mathematical inclination? This is what I want to do. So I knew I wanted to be somebody who was a doctor who worked in genetics. That then led me, after a lot of training, uh, to end up at the University of Michigan on the faculty and working to try to find causes for genetic diseases. And that's when the cystic fibrosis gene mm. uh, got discovered by my group uh, working with a collaborator uh, in Toronto. And that was that was a pretty big moment because it was the first time somebody had actually discovered the cause of a genetic disease without really knowing what we were looking for. We only knew it was inherited. That was all we could really say. 
And you had to sift through this vast sea of genetic information called the human genome to find, in that case, three letters out of three billion that were missing. Needle in the haystack only more so. So that was that was kind of a moment of feeling like this could actually work, but it isn't going to work very much anytime soon unless we actually have a reference to go by. You need a copy of at least one reference copy of the human genome, and then you can start searching for little subtle changes in people with an illness, and you'll have a chance of getting them. So that was the motivation for the Genome Project, which was already being talked about. So I was a big fan. I didn't think that that would necessarily be my job, but I thought it ought to be somebody's job. And at the very first uh, start of it, no less a rock star than uh, himself, Jim Watson, as in Watson and Crick, uh, agreed to take it on. And that was good because everybody knew who he was and he could walk the halls of Congress and convince them to talk to him and maybe start up with some funding for this. It didn't last very long. <laughs> Dr. Watson, for all of his rock star status, uh, had some other rock star habits of saying whatever came to mind. <laughs> that doesn't play out too well inside uh, the beltway. And after he had offended several people, including his boss, uh, who at that time was the head of the NIH, uh, he basically got fired. And then there was this deep gloom that fell over the Genome Project. It was still this baby in the crib. It was barely getting off the ground. Most of the scientific community was not very supportive. And uh, somebody had to come and run this thing. And to my surprise, the search committee zeroed in on me. Um, I think because I was a physician, most of the other people doing the work uh, were basic scientists. And uh, maybe because having grown up in the theater, I was used to talking in front of an audience. And there was a lot of need for that, too. So there I was uh, being asked to give up uh, my really happy uh, experience of running a research lab and taking care of patients and teaching medical students in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and move uh, to become an institute director at NIH, which meant becoming a federal employee something my mother told me never to do. <laughs> well, what's worse than a federal employee? Two federal employees. <laughs> Just, well, you mentioned that there wasn't a ton of support in the scientific community there for wasn't. this project. Why, why was that? Um, there were several reasons. Um, it was considered unfeasible. Uh, people thought, you know, that's great to say you're going to read out those three billion letters. You won't get that done in 100 years. So mm. you, you're just making a promise here you won't be able to keep. It'll sort of ruin the credibility of life science altogether. That was one argument. Another was, hey, it's going to cost a lot of money. That might come out of my grant. Mm. <laughs> I don't want you to do that because that's interesting. It, it might not help me with my project. The third one, which was I was most offended by, was it's going to be so boring that only mediocre scientists will want to take part in it. And hey, I want to take part in it. And I didn't think I was mediocre. There was even a person who said, well, I know what we'll do. We'll just get everybody in the prison system uh, to agree <laughs> to help out. And if you sequence 30,000 letters of the DNA code, you get parole. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was only partly tongue in cheek. So yeah, that was offended, offensive because actually scientifically, this turned out to be one of the most exciting adventures we humans have ever been on. 
it wasn't like you were going to do the whole project with existing technology. That would have taken 100 years and cost a zillion dollars and would have been boring. No, you had to get in there and invent a whole new way of doing this at high throughput, high accuracy. And that's what we did and actually finished the project two years early and about $400 million under budget. Wow. So we've already touched upon the applicability um, the applicate the for for the layperson naming uh, some of the diseases that that have been able to we've been able to address, uh, uh-huh. but for for the layperson, tell us uh, what the significance is of the Human Genome Project, and perhaps uh, more about the applications of it uh, for, for for our day to day lives. Well, it is our instruction book, um, and you get half of yours from your mom and half from your dad. And that carries with it a lot about your ancestry. And of course, people are using that these days uh, for places like Ancestry.com or 23andMe to make conclusions about where their ancestors came from if they didn't know. That's kind of nice recreation. But the reason I was excited about this was the medical implications. When we found that gene for cystic fibrosis, there were only a handful of diseases that had reached that point of actually knowing precisely what the misspelling is. And by the way, that has led now to a development where cystic fibrosis for 90% of people who have it is associated with almost normal survival. I mean, it's just been profound change uh, because of knowing the answer. But we now know uh, the precise DNA cause of about 7,000 genetic diseases, many of them quite rare, but we know what the cause is and many of those are now on a path towards better treatment. That's one thing. Another thing is to talk about what we really have learned about cancer, because cancer is a disease of the genome. It happens because of misspellings in DNA. Some of those can be hereditary, like BRCA1 and BRCA2 that people may have heard about. Most of cancer, though, happens because of a misspelling that happens during your lifetime in a particular cell that gets something not quite right when it copies its instruction book and it activates a gene that tells that cell to just keep growing, don't stop, keep growing. Or maybe it knocks out a gene that was supposed to be the brakes on the car and and that doesn't work either. And so the cell keeps growing and that's what cancer is. It's cells that have lost their ability to stop and they just keep expanding, expanding and they spread to other parts of your body. We really didn't know much about cancer until the genome came along. (laughs) Now, if you got cancer today, you would want to have that cancer examined at the DNA level to say, for you, what are the specific things that have happened? What misspellings are in there that are causing those cells to grow when they should not? And then let's look at that list of what's causing your cancer and look at the list of drugs that are available that target particular pathways and do the match Mm. so that you're getting precision cancer treatment, not one size fits all, which is what we used to do. That's totally changed the paradigm of how we treat. And it's resulted in cancer death rates falling steadily. They're down now 25% of what they were before the genome project came along. Wow. So you can you can address cancer at the cellular level and yeah. look for those misspellings, as you would put it, and yeah. uh, do, do do a grammar check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do a spell check. <laughs> That's so interesting. So uh, I heard you also talk about um, the it, you were head of the NIH uh, during COVID, obviously, and 
I think I think I heard this correctly that um, there was a vaccine that was designed by mid January of 2020, which was before a lot of us even heard about COVID. Yeah. Did I did I hear that correctly? And if so, was that due to the work that you had done? Is it is this all connected? It's all connected, and I'm okay. glad you're making that link. Yeah, so the virus that caused COVID-19, the virus we call SARS-CoV-2, emerged in China. And uh, what do you want to do to characterize the virus? You want to look at its DNA, uh, which was done. And that sequence of those letters, only about 30,000 in that virus, it's a lot smaller than the human genome, 30,000 letters got posted on the internet on January 10th, uh, 2020. 48 hours later, um, our scientists at the Vaccine Research Center at NIH had designed the vaccine wow. that ultimately became the Moderna mRNA vaccine. It was that quick because they had been working on this for 25 years, getting ready for the moment where something like this might be possible, and no time was wasted. And in another 60 days, the first patient was being injected with the phase one trial. Also, that's about 10 times faster than had ever happened before. So all of that was sort of queued up. And of course, we were all feeling incredibly pressured during that year of 2020 and beyond with the fact that so many people were getting infected and deaths were rising to the point where thousands of people were dying every day. And you just felt like if there was anything that can speed this up, we have to do that. And out of that came this strategy and a whole lot of other things that were done in really unique, uh, bold, and um, I think highly meritorious ways to get it done. And as you know, then by late November, early December, uh, the really big, huge trials of 30,000 or more people uh, were unblinded, so you could really see what happened. And here was this astounding result of 95% efficacy and almost no side effects for both the Pfizer and the Moderna mRNA vaccines. I will tell you, when I saw that data for the first time, I had prayed so hard about this. Yeah, uh, It was both this sense of scientific exhilaration, but more than that, it was just gratitude uh, to God that this was going to be possible and we were going to somehow stop uh, the terrible loss of life that was happening all around us. Uh, sociology is not necessarily your area of expertise. Um, but the the reaction by some to create like uh, polar camps, if you will, mm. uh, and and the anti-vax movement that just uh, swelled. Um, I I wouldn't ask you to address that unless you wanted to. Like, how, how did that? How? Why? It's almost as if a, a a community of people decided to put on a political jersey and just decided we are anti gravity. We just don't believe in gravity. It's you know, it didn't make a ton of sense to me. But what I did, and again, if you want to address that, I, I'd be mm. I'd be curious about your thoughts. But what I did want to ask you about, on a personal level, there was a breathtaking number of attacks, vicious attacks against people like you, Dr. Fauci, the, the CDC as a whole. How were you able to manage and your family, how, how were you able to manage such an onslaught? It's got to be excruciating. Uh, it was, and it is, it's not over. Um, how did this happen to us? Uh, how did it become possible for Americans with all of their tradition of being focused on trying to learn the facts and make a wise decision uh, to be so 
knocked off course by information that was demonstrably false and yet became very much part of a lot of the information swirling around uh, on social media or sometimes on cable news. Um, you could look back and say before COVID came along, we were already on a path of increasing divisiveness that we had reached the point where many of us were retreating to our own bubbles and avoiding interacting with people who weren't sort of part of our own mindset and then feeding ourselves with information that we agreed with and not necessarily wanting to listen to alternative views. That was happening. It seemed to get a lot worse uh, politically uh, over the course of the last 10 or 20 years, and maybe especially uh, for the last couple of campaigns uh, for presidency. And then COVID came along and it just tapped right into that. And there were a lot of public health efforts to try to counter that, but I think public health efforts were not always as successful as they might have been. I found myself being asked many times uh, to pop up on your television uh, talking about what are the latest findings about COVID and what does that mean for how to keep yourself safe. And oftentimes those were circumstances where we were still trying to learn about this virus because it came across so quickly and it needed an awful lot of investigation to really know how was it transmitted and what were the things that were going to be protective. So we were often making recommendations without certainty that they were right. And I don't think we necessarily always said that. And then if there was a public health recommendation last week that said you should do X. And then this week it said, well, no, actually you should do Y because we had new information. People began to think they're just jerking us around. Mm. And if there was already some suspicion uh, on the parts of some people about the government anyway, this was an easy one to sort of tap into. And that happened more and more. And I'm sorry to say uh, other forces that basically um, you could call conflict entrepreneurs yeah. uh, played into that. Um, and some of them made money off of that. And some of them were politicians uh, who, for their own reasons, to try to whip up uh, people uh, in, with fear and anger, uh, promoted things that were demonstrably not true. And what happened to us? We kind of spun into these divided communities. And Corey, the hardest part of this to look at, the saddest, most unbelievably tragic outcome that I never would have dreamed would happen in the United States of America is when you look to see what happened in terms of people who decided to pass up the vaccine because of their uncertainties about its safety or whether it was the mark of the beast or whatever they were hearing. And the estimates by the Commonwealth Fund are that 234,000 people are in graveyards today unnecessarily because of that misinformation. That's, that's a lot more people than died in the Korean and Vietnam wars together, unnecessarily struck down by misinformation. How did that happen in our country? Yeah, no, I know three personally uh, that I kept in dialogue with. Um, all three were staunchly anti-vaccine um, and all three tragically passed away from, from COVID. Um, yeah, it, it, it is inexplicable. I was wondering, you know, to, to be fair, I, I ha had watched uh, Dr. Fauci as new information was emerging, 
he would always say, this is the best information that we have at this point. We're mm-hmm. making recommendations as information is coming at us like a, a, a waterfall. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is the best information that we have. It's, it's an impossible task to navigate yeah. a country and a world uh, through a global pandemic. Um, but it is, uh, it is un- unfortunate. I-, I was curious, in what ways do you think, I-, I know you don't like to speak about individual politicians, but in what ways do you think an administration or an individual elected official uh, can help or hinder efforts to tackle a pandemic? Well, I would think that if you're an elected official, your goal is to serve the public. Uh, your goal, therefore, is to try to provide information and pass laws uh, that are going to maximize human flourishing. And that means tackling complicated issues and not being willing uh, to jump on uh, to some particular latest view that somebody just told you without knowing whether it's true or not. Aren't you supposed to be an advocate for truth uh, and to ask people uh, to really examine their own sources of information and determine whether they deserve to be trusted or not. And I, again, lots of elected officials uh, nobly did that. Uh, but you know how our media system works. It's the people who are saying things that are the most frightening, that are the most likely to make you angry, uh, that go immediately viral. And if that's your social media and the algorithm has discovered that, you're going to see a lot more of that. And it just whipped everybody up. Uh, into a negative frenzy and made it very hard, Corey, for actual, simple, non-emotional facts to get through. Uh, they were almost invisible because of all the noise. You, you know, so Denver Riggleman, uh, I, I really enjoyed a conversation with Denver Riggleman um, and can't wait to visit one of his distilleries in, or his wife's distilleries in Virginia. Uh, but he shared something that maybe you could speak to even more uh, authoritatively, um, he he did some research and he found that there was a very similar reaction, chemical reaction that folks have when they watch, as you would put it, these uh, angertainment or or conflict entrepreneurs. Um, that there's a similar chemical reaction to anger and fear uh, on on TV or reading in, on online that we have when we uh, take a hit of crack. Can you can you speak? Is that is that right? Or can you speak to that a little bit more? That is right. Uh, I've seen some of that research that bases its its conclusions on what you can see with some of the uh, scans you can do of which parts of the brain are activating uh, during certain experiences, things like fMRI or PET scans. And yeah, I think the analogy is not a bad one that, in fact, this kind of anger and fear does fire you up. There's another analogy there that, that Curtis Chang, uh, who's a pastor and now a guy at Duke. Maybe you've had Curtis on your program. Just He'll be, he to... has been on the program and he'll be coming again next week. Can't wait to talk ah, to him again. Okay, yeah. I'm doing a little <laughs> advertising for Curtis. Now, I heard him give a talk where he said the other thing that is perhaps connected here is that conspiracy theories can also become addictive. Because how do you fall into that anyway? You're in a circumstance where you are angry, you're fearful, you're not sure what's going on. It seems like everything's out of control. Uh, Maybe there's some evil force that's behind bad things that are happening. And then somebody offers you a conspiracy theory that explains it and gives an opportunity to see who is the bad guy. 
And that gives you a certain sense of relief. Like now I have inside information mm. and now I'm linked to this other group that shares that inside information. And now that doesn't feel like I'm all alone and lost in this. So you kind of get to that. And after a while, maybe it wanes a little bit and you need another hit. Yeah. Along comes another conspiracy. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one too. And then somebody comes along and tries to say, well, no, wait a minute, let's just look at this. The facts actually don't support the QAnon perspective on this. You're going to say, oh, I don't want to hear that. They're, you're being asked to go through acute withdrawal, just like somebody who's addicted to drugs. You're going to reject that. Yeah. And so instead, you go around and try to find another hit. I don't think that's too big a stretch for what's happening uh, to some people who've gotten caught in this sort of rotating door uh, of conspiracies, building upon this need to feel like I've got some kind of understanding, some kind of control. This is where I'm getting. Yeah, there's a natural inclination to uh, want to be a part of an exclusive club. Speaking of exclusive clubs, I <laughs> just thought of this. The only exclusive club I really, my lifelong dream would be a part of is the book club that you and I, I think Dr. <laughs> Moore, Dr. Russell Moore and, and Pete Wayner and uh, David Brooks. Uh, there's this book club I'm dying to be a part of. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Yancey. And David oh, and Bradley. Tim Keller was a part of it. He's Tim like your angel Keller. member. Yeah. Oh, Tim is my most significant spiritual mentor for gosh the last 10 or 15 years is incredibly wise source of advice and support and prayer um, he was big part of our trying to get the biologos effort underway to try to convince people that science and faith could really get along uh, without compromising either one and he took some risks by joining that effort early on and saying yeah Serious evangelical Christians uh, ought to look at this and not be afraid that it's going to somehow undercut their reading of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and I had the privilege of being involved uh, with Tim's care uh, in the last couple of years as he was dealing with pancreatic cancer. And he came to NIH for a very experimental immunotherapy uh, treatment, which I think <clears throat> gave him an extra year of life, uh, but ultimately didn't work any longer. And to be there at his bedside, uh, he didn't want to talk about cancer. He wanted to talk about Jesus and everything else. I learned so much uh, from him that I carry with me every day, but I just wish I could uh, call him up. Well, you bring up, um, we had an honorary uh, conversation with uh, Pete and John. I listened uh, to it, Corey. Oh, it was good. like incredibly profound and moving. Yeah, too, it's too. one of those things I remember where I was when I was listening to that because it was so significant. Oh, I'm getting chills. That 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 <laughs> that means a ton. Uh, it was a really rich conversation. I've had follow up conversations with both Pete and John, not just about that talk, but certain uh, things that arose in the midst of that talk, and they they've been really helpful. Even though they're new friends, they their 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 friendship is very very meaningful to me. So. Um, being able to talk about tough stuff like that um, yeah. really enriches one's life uh, does in indeed. such times. I'm writing a book myself, and um, I just sent a, one of the chapters, which was a chapter about truth, uh, to John, because I thought he might be a good person to shoot it down, given his oh, amazing book, The Constitution of Knowledge. Oh, yeah. And I was greatly relieved uh, two days ago when he said he liked it. So <laughs> maybe I'm going to be okay. Oh, that's great. That's great. John has this way of of cutting to the heart of the problem or the quagmire, if there is one, 
uh, and really confounding me while at the same time uh, providing some of the most encouraging feedback in, in uh, concise uh, wording. W- when I first reached out to him, it was the best response ever. He said, to, I, I, I asked him to come on the program and he said, you had me at high, John. <laughs> it was terrific. Um, so you, you have these wonderful relationships uh, across uh, differences. Um, I, I've heard you talk about your, your friendship uh, it didn't start out as a friendship. It started out pretty adversarial with uh, Christopher Hitchens. Oh yeah. Um, what are this is sort of my TPNR question? But what are some of the ingredients required to nurture relationships with folks like that, or or mm. perhaps folks? Uh, you said that you've talked to dozens, if not hundreds, of members of Congress, some of whom's per, per, uh, public persona is very adversarial towards you. So, what are some of the ingredients to help you? Uh, stay in conversation and even nurture relationships with folks like that. I'm also part of Braver Angels, which is an organization that is trying to nurture that in everybody who's part. And I've learned quite a bit from that over the course of the last couple of years. John Roush is also an important uh, part of Braver Angels, one of the founders. I think you have to have curiosity that you really do want to understand how people come to a very different perspective than you do. That means you got to start out with a certain amount of generous spirit, which is hard to come by these days. You have to set aside the tendency that we seem to have increasingly that somebody who doesn't agree with you is just evil. Mm. No, they're not. They have their reasons for why they have come to a particular conclusion. Don't you want to know? (laughs) If you consider that that is a person in God's image, uh, that is a person who uh, is, is like an amazing, splendid creation. Don't you want to know how they've arrived at their perspective? You may not agree with it, but listening seems like it would be a good start. And then you have to decide to take that risk. And you have to really listen and not sort of plan your retort as soon as they say something you didn't quite agree with. Really try to understand it. And that's where I was with Hitch. Um, I understood where he came from as far as his very strong atheism. And he, to his credit, was a pretty good listener too when he was not in the middle of a debate in front of an audience. And he was quite capable of paying attention uh, to your arguments and even in a certain grudging way, respecting them. Uh, And over a couple of years, uh, I didn't convince him to become a believer and he didn't convince me to become an atheist, but we became really good friends. And, and enjoyed the repartee, enjoyed the iron sharpening iron uh, when you are not just talking to people who all agree with you. Same thing in the Braver Angels setting. Uh, there's a lot of people there that feel very strongly that the public health response to COVID was terrible. And my alter ego in Braver Angels, Wilk Wilkinson, is one of those. He's a guy who runs a trucking company in Minnesota and is just livid about all the things that were done uh, during the pandemic that interfered with his freedoms. And initially, I thought, this is going to be a tough relationship. But now I say we're really good friends. And we I still think he's wrong about a bunch of stuff. And he thinks <laughs> I'm wrong about a bunch of stuff. But I think we've both been enlivened and enriched uh, by the experience. You just got to decide to do that and to take the chance that it's going to be a little rattling. And I wouldn't say that's easy. It's gotten easier for me because I guess I've been trying to do a lot of it. Just encourage other people who are listening to do the same. Find somebody who 
you don't agree with about something really rather at the present time contentious, but who you kind of think is a reasonable person in other ways and say, hey, let's you and I do an experiment. Let's go for coffee or a glass of wine and let's talk about this topic. And I promise you, I'm really going to listen to your perspective because I know you don't agree with me, but I want to understand why. And maybe you can promise me to do the same. And then the other thing I learned from Braver Angels that really makes that conversation go so much better is the willingness to admit when you're wrong. <laughs> that if somebody gives a point that you realize, you know, I've been really not quite correct about that, you say so. And pretty soon they say so that they had something they weren't quite proud of either. <laughs> and then you really knock down the barriers and you start to be real people and you're not afraid of revealing what's really happening inside. If we could do a lot more of that, and I think, Corey, this is gonna have to happen sort of one person at a time. I don't think we're gonna fix our current divisiveness by some sort of executive order or a new piece of legislation. Frankly, the Congress is more divided than the people are anyway, so don't count on them. I think this has gotta come up from each of us, and especially those of us who are in what more in common calls the exhausted middle, um, where you're looking at those things on the extremes and going, they get all the attention, but I don't really think I agree with that stuff. But let's come to life. Uh, more in common would say two thirds of Americans are in this space of somewhat to the left, somewhat to the right, but not in the extremes and really tired of all of the divisiveness and wanting to see something better. This is not who we are. It's not, the most un-American thing is to hate other Americans, and yet there's way too much of that going on. Maybe one at a time, uh, gathering with other people in your community, we could fix that from the ground up. That's my hope. That's why I'm writing this book. That's my dream for where America might be able to get to, because where we are right now is not a good thing. Wow. You're, you're striking uh, and resonating with so many of the themes that we've come upon in this exploration, this talk of politics and religion without killing each other. And it is possible, a uh, big fan of Braver Angels. In fact, I listened to that conversation with you and Wilk. He has a, a really um, admirable uh, podcast called Derate the Hate. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was expecting a conversation that was characterized more by aversion, but it was characterized mostly by affinity. And that was really encouraging. <laughs> um, you brought something up uh, I didn't. I didn't want to ask you. Maybe we don't have a, a ton of time to to address it, but I. You said allowing for the possibility that, huh? I might have been wrong about that. What were some of the things? I think you you did start to allude to this, but what were mm -hmm. some of the things during your leadership and your handling of of what we were going through through COVID that you say, you know, I I think I was wrong about that. Or, mm -hmm. or our group maybe handled this in not the best way? I think the main one was, for me anyway, the failure to say how uncertain I was uh, about conclusions that you could draw at any given moment uh, when this virus was still very much an unknown quantity. The whole issue about masking, uh, where we initially said, well, you don't need a mask. And then we realized, oh, my God, this virus can be carried around by people who have no symptoms mm. and infect lots of other people. Oh, time to put on the masks. But that message didn't come across. That's where we lost a lot of people, at least from the conversations I've had. And we could have handled that better. Um, 
I think at times I probably sounded more accusatory uh, than empathetic uh, for people who were anti-vax uh, and who were spreading anti-vax information. I would have done better, I think, to say, let's try to understand where that's coming from. Look, we're all trying to do what we think is right here. That happens not to be something that I think is going to be good for you, but let me understand it as opposed to you're actually a danger <laughs> to other people around you. Uh, it seemed at the time that we were in such a crisis that any message that might get through uh, was worth putting forward, but not all messages are necessarily going to have the positive response you're looking for. Yeah. No, I found that just in one of my kid, my middle child, the older of my two boys, uh, he was uh, vaccine skeptical at first, mm -hmm. uh, but because he was merely skeptical, he was attacked by a lot of folks in the family and friends, including me. And it just made him into a staunch anti-vaxxer. Oh. Um, and I, I realized that I was part of that. My, my reaction to his skepticism maybe contributed to his becoming, uh, uh, you know, averse to, to the possibility yeah. of getting a vaccine. What was, the social scientists call the backfire effect. Yeah, the backfire. That's a great way to put it. Um, getting close to the end here. Do you have any questions for me? So you've been talking politics and religion and trying not to kill people uh, or have them kill each other. <laughs> Corey, are you hopeful about where we are right now and how we might actually get into a better place? I, I got to tell you, I'm deeply troubled uh, about the state of our nation, our community, and, and other countries are not necessarily immune from this either, although it feels like the United States has a particularly bad case. Yeah. So it, it, it's a complicated question because if you ask me on a personal level, I have many reasons on an everyday basis to be hopeful. Um, and that is just what you were alluding to before. That is when I talk to a friend that I have a lot of differences with mm -hmm. and it's a coffee or a wine or a whiskey or a meal or a lunch or anything, we, we see each other's humanity and it's not this grand solution where everything is solved or that I completely convince him or her or she or he completely convinces me of just, you know, whatever it might be that we're talking about. But there's one degree, there's one degree of persuasion that yeah. we each have on each other, right? Yeah. And that, yeah. that gives me hope. When I think about the bigger picture where this country's headed, yeah, there's a real possibility that we're not going to have a constitutional democracy after too long. Then again, I think about I am only a generation or two removed from, like I said before, my my family came from what's now Chernyastrov, Ukraine. So we've, we're still here, <laughs> you know, yeah. whether it's yeah. democracy or the, the Russian uh, empire or the Persians or the Babylonians or we're still here. It's, it's okay. It'll be okay. <laughs> you know, I hate to think that we ruin it. Um, we ruin this, uh, this constitutional experiment over, uh, you know, w what we're watching on TV that night, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and slogans that, that we hurl at each other as if they're, they're weapons. I'd hate to think that, that uh, America ends that way. Uh, yeah. but, you know, I, I'm just, I'm trying not to get too far ahead of it. I, I'll get way too anxious if I think too far down the road. Uh, so I'm looking I'm, forward. I'm right there, right yeah. there with you. You yeah. know, Corey, I also hope, and I know you're speaking to a lot of people of faith. We are uh, right now. 
that there's an opportunity there for faith communities to rise up and be part of the solution by reattaching themselves to the foundations of where their belief system resides. You talked about reading Matthew 5 for the first time. Well, yeah, let's go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Get that whole Sermon on the Mount right down to love your enemies. Imagine yeah. what happened when Jesus said that. People must have been shocked and scandalized. But that's what he asked us to do. We're not doing a lot of that. Right. And somehow faith communities have been particularly susceptible, it seems, uh, to some of the most hateful messages and political manipulations. Hey, folks, let's get back to the roots here. What would Jesus do? I don't think a lot of what's happening right now would be a good description of that. And if there is some way we could sort of walk away uh, from all of the meanness, all of the vengeance, all the grievance, all the politics, and go back to being who we are. Remember that hymn, they will know we are Christians by our love. Mm. Wow, wouldn't that be amazing if people said that right now? Yeah. We can do that again. I think I think it's possible. I think there is something that we can tap into. And one of the things I'm looking forward to talking to Curtis about is the after party uh, that he's yeah. doing with uh, Dr. Moore and, and David French. Uh, and I think they are uh, doing some work on that level. But we can we don't need a big organization. We we can do it on an individual basis. I think that's right. I think that's the only way it's really going to happen. Yeah. So before we wrap up, how can folks follow you, find more information about BioLogos and your upcoming book? And uh, I'm expecting a concert tour, too, at some point. <laughs> All the great work that you're doing. How can we yeah, find you? You and four other people will come to that concert. Maybe. <laughs> They'll be my family members. Um, so uh, BioLogos uh, is, I think, turned into a wonderful place uh, for gathering on the web of people who want to have serious conversations about how the latest findings in science are entirely consistent with uh, what you might have expected to find as a serious Christian who loves the Bible. So it's biologos.org, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S.org. By all means, go and have a look. Lots and lots of information, lots of people uh, weighing in there. Um, for me, I'm not at the present time on social media, and I'm, I'm not sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> other people seem to want to write about me on social media, but I'm not usually seeing that. Uh, and I am in the process of trying to get this book out. Uh, the editor now has the final draft, and it should be published along about September. It's a book about truth and science and faith and trust to be published by Little Brown. Terrific. Really looking forward to that book. We'll put the biologos.org link in the uh, show notes. And uh, this is such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's such a thrill to get to, because I've been reading your work for such a long time. Uh, you know, back, back uh, in the language of God came out, I forget how many years ago. 2006, I don't yeah. know, Middle Ages, I think. And it was an encouragement to me as a young Christian, uh, very early on when I became a Christian, that, oh, you know, I, I can be rational and be fascinated by it. It's, uh, your, your work has resonance uh, that, that are um, really edifying and encouraging to so many folks. So it's such a thrill to get to talk to you today. Well, thanks, Corey. I love what you're doing with your podcast. Keep it up, man. Thank you. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit that subscribe button and write that review. It really does make a difference. Tell somebody about TPNR. We're 
We're getting to those conversations just like we're talking about. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's spelled out politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me online. I am still online in a lot of places, although I'm not on that Twitter thing too much anymore. But I'm at Corey S. Nathan, at C-O-R-E-Y-S as in Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N. And uh, now, just go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week.